I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Today's episode is brought to you by PodPage. PodPage is the best service out there for easily and quickly creating your own podcast website. In fact, DivingDeepEDU.com was created using PodPage. It is super easy to use with nice customization and helpful features. Go to podpage.com to get started with a podcast website today. Use code DIVINGDEEP, all lowercase, to get your first month free or 50% off a premium membership. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Noan Fainu. Noan has worked as an educator since 2003. He has worked with multiple startups. In Vancouver, he helped establish Little Mountain Learning Academy. Over eight years at Green School Bali in Indonesia, Noan developed several programs core to the school, including Green Studies and an impactful experiential learning program. He moved to Budapest in Hungary, July 2019, to start up Real School of Budapest. Noan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing amazing. I have a big smile on my face. It's great hearing your voice and enthusiasm in that intro. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you. It's great to be connecting. You know, right now I'm in Philadelphia. You're in Hungary. We're in different time zones. I messed up the time, so I apologize for that, but it's no great worries. to be able to have this conversation. Noan, you moved around quite a bit. You move around quite a bit now as well, but as a child, you moved around uh, quite a bit. You lived in some amazing places. What were some of the places uh, that you lived growing up? I grew up uh, moving between Europe and the States. Uh, mm -hmm. I was born in France. Then we moved to the UK over to Michigan, where my mom actually was born. Okay. And then back to Germany for a bit, on to Canada. And then as an adult, I said, why are we moving between these two continents when there's another couple? And so I <laughs> took myself to South Africa for a while and uh, and then ended up in Indonesia. So hmm. uh, yes, I, I've been around a bit and yeah. it's actually a huge part of how I've come to understand learning, how I hmm. feel learning could and should be in a way 
totally experiential. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit more. How has moving around and those experiences impacted the way that you view learning? So it really makes it easy when you have a context. And uh, context comes through experiences. The more experiences you have, I think the easier it is to to be able to place an idea, to place a concept. And uh, essentially, to me, that is the essence of experiential learning, something that I always bring into the pedagogy of any school that I'm in. And yeah, it's really almost the most natural and the only authentic way to learn, in a sense. When you look back on those experiences, you know, moving around and being part of different cultures and different schools and different environments, what are some things that you've learned through that process? I guess a big one is that everybody is motivated and excited by the same things. It doesn't matter where you're from on the planet. Uh, Good food and Mm. jokes are probably universal doesn't matter what people say uh, about Germans being serious they love to laugh they love to eat and the same is true for Indonesians for South Africans everywhere you find the same uh, core human spirit and to me that that's a pretty big deal to learn that and uh, recognize our oneness in a way Thinking about a lot of the places that you've visited, I'm not going to ask what's your favorite. I'm going to ask it a different way. What's a place that you've visited that has allowed you to breathe a little deeper? So think of it like this. Think yoga, right? Helping you breathe in and breathe out a little deeper. What's a place that has done that for you? That's a tough question. I would I would definitely, and it's almost cliche, but having lived in Bali eight years, that that has allowed me to really appreciate a different pace and lifestyle. Uh, yeah. My wife's Balinese, and uh, it it just makes you think about the priorities, what we what we consider really important, in a different mm-hmm. way. And a lot of that revolves around family and culture, two things that, of course, everybody says is important, but the degree at which uh, people spend their time with those is almost inverse when you go to a place like Bali compared to a place like the States or Canada. So bring me into that a bit, especially with your, your wife being from there. So they, they prioritize those, those things more or they experience them differently. What does that look like? A good example is the number of days I got off in uh, a Balinese school uh, it's an international school in Bali, but we have to honor the the locals' holidays and the fact that, well, they have a lot of different ceremonies that they attend to. And mm-hmm. it's supernatural to be like, oh, got a ceremony or a funeral that I'm going to. And it's not an immediate relative. It might be somebody from their village, but there's still this uh, this understanding that that's important and so a lot less emphasis on uh, I gotta I gotta work my butt off to succeed and more mm. of a emphasis on hey I have responsibilities in my community that I need mm. to attend to. And what's the benefit of of that a, a 
upon you? How did you experience the benefit of that? Yeah, it's, it goes both ways. It's not 100% benefit, but the bene- uh, it's a realization that I love my job and I love what I do, but it's also just one part of me. And hmm. it may be an important part of me, but I've got to embrace and take time for all those other parts of me as well. Yeah, I would like to, I would definitely like to hear more about Bali and, and talk more about it and hear about your experiences there. Um, and a little bit of that is, is selfish because uh, a bunch of years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Indonesia. We were with some friends and we had the chance to go to Bali and we, uh, for one reason or another, we chose against it. I'm not sure why, uh, but I am sure that that was probably a bad decision. So tell me, you know, I wasn't able to go. Tell us, many of us aren't able to, to go there. What was it like uh, living there? So I guess living there is different from visiting in the sense mm. that you you start uh, you start to see the intricacies of everything that's happening. Uh, yeah. That as a tourist, I mean, is so beautiful, and there's so much care taken in the aesthetic and the ceremony. Uh, and then living there, you also recognize that that comes with. Uh, a, a certain lifestyle restrictions. It means that uh, you, each family is spending time making offerings every day, and often that falls on to somebody's shoulders uh, who may not necessarily want to spend that time doing that. Hmm. And so it does. Uh, living there gives you a bit of nuance into into something that I guess globally looks and is. Uh, so beautiful as a culture. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before we move on and get a little bit more into that, I really appreciate the distinction that you just made there between living in a place and being a tourist in a place. Because sometimes, you know, tourism is wonderful and a lot of people want to go to beautiful places like Bali, but sometimes we go and don't think about the people living there day in and day out and experiencing that society. And sometimes we come in there um, as tourists, and I've been guilty of this, and we just sort of take and not giving and not sort of ingraining. And sometimes that can have, I mean, I don't want to get off on that tangent, uh, the negative effects that can have, but I just want to say, I appreciate you making that distinction and allowing us to see the whole picture. Your, your living situation there, what's a traditional, maybe not traditional, what's a common uh, housing structure or living situation uh, for people? And, and maybe what was your living situation like uh, while you were living there? When I was living in Bali, I spent a good amount of time the living in the family compound. This is a really traditional way of living. You have the parents and traditionally it's all of their sons uh, will stay in the family compound and bring their families in that uh, group of houses which are connected by yards. Uh, in our case, my wife's brother was in uh, studying abroad, and so uh, we we took his place for a while and spent three years in the family compound, living living with a uh, bapak and ibu. That's mom and dad in hmm. Indonesian, and. Uh, and then we spent that uh, time saving up money to build our own house. And now we have a house in, in the rice fields made out of wood. Uh, I, I'm very big on sustainability. And so mm. we, uh, 
we made it out of reclaimed wood from another house, just deconstructed a house and then rebuilt it and uh, refurbished it. And that's great. We don't have to worry about (laughs) actually for the first year we lived there, we didn't even have windows. So uh, it posed a bit of a problem since it was also uh, the year that uh, Mount Agung, the volcano decided to erupt. So we got kind of worried as we weren't able to seal ourselves away from volcanic ash, but fortunately, none blew our way. I want to get into the green school and and for our or green school for our listeners who haven't checked this school out. Uh, you need to uh, greenschool.org, and they're expanding to other places beyond Bali as well. So bring me in there. Uh, describe to me. Describe to us because this is a different type of school. Uh, what is green school? Uh, I would. I would start by saying green school for a progressive educator is almost a religious experience. It's like going to the cathedral of progressive education. You walk in to this bamboo gate and in front of you are a few bamboo structures. Behind is what they call the heart of school. It's a about, I think it's over 10 meter tall, uh, which is like 30 feet. Uh, entirely bamboo structure with three levels and it spans maybe 150 feet from uh, tip to tail. And that's, that used to be, at least when I was there, that was the high school and Mm -hmm. the architecture kind of puts you into a state of awe. You are, uh, you surrender to how amazing it is. And for somebody who, wants to see education change, it becomes a really strong symbol. The rest of the campus is laid out in between the biggest river in Bali. And so it kind of folds down into the river and the classrooms all sit uh, tiered as it drops down uh, into the river basin. And between each classroom, you'd find a host of gardens and coconut trees, uh, a couple of the local agroforest trees are there, and uh, of course, tons of kids. Since <laughs> since all the uh, classrooms are open air, what you end up getting is uh, a, a really nice ambiance, a nice noise from the kids who are studying in different spaces, laughing and playing, and that kind of permeates the whole grounds. Trying to be unbiased, and that's hard for any of us to do, but looking at the students, you mentioned, you know, there's tons of students running around, right? Like like at, like there should be at any school. What do you think the students' experience is there? If you had to sort of guess without bringing them on and interviewing them, what, what do you think their experience is going to that school? It is a really uh, good beacon for bringing in some pretty amazing educators and Mm -hmm. so a lot of the students may kind of forget about the beautiful architecture and environment they're in but they're supported by some really incredible individuals who are designing their learning and so uh, I'm actually friends with many of the students who graduated from the high school and keep in touch with them and get really endearing messages just about, hey, you know, I was thinking the other day and I really love the impact that you 
had on my life in this way or that way. And I feel like I'm one of many adults or educators there who uh, do provide that. So, mm. uh, and there's a there's a really strong community element where it it doesn't matter if you are the sort of black sheep punk kid or if you're the shy kid. Uh, everybody finds a way to connect in and finds people they can relate to and feels pretty welcome, I feel at mm. least. Now, when you were there, um, you started um, an experiential program, Leap Academy. Tell me about that. It was, I think, my third year at Green School. And uh, one of the new recruits was a friend of mine, Aaron Eden, who is also a, a, a pretty progressive fellow in education. And we were conspiring together on trying to create a bit of a school within a school. We wanted mm. we wanted to up the level of experiential education that kids could have. We recognize that while the educators are amazing, buildings are amazing, you've got great students, there was still a lot of the tropes that you would see in a traditional school. That you'd move from period to period, and over the course of a couple days or a week, you might have six different courses and there there's very little integration between the content of those courses. So you might have six really different experiences. And we said it would be amazing if we could find a way to bring some kids in and do something where it was six weeks intensive and projects to both of us are one of the ways forward for that. Let's find a way to make it project oriented. And we also felt we wanted to bring in a true entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of agency. And so rather than saying, how about we pitch projects to kids and then they come on board for six weeks, we thought, no, let's pitch an experience and then the projects are something that we figure out together and mm. they can buy in from the start. They decide which projects they want to take on and they can even bring projects with them. And over six weeks, they have a lot of time to work on it and a chance to really turn something from just a dream into a reality. Yeah, that's astounding. And it's also, tell me about, okay, so you had this idea. Um, you wanted to bring about this change. And then how was that interaction with the administration um, to make it happen? Like I mentioned earlier, there's a ton of amazing people. And that goes always at Green School. Uh, so we did have really positive support from administration. There was some puzzlement about how we would be able to fit credits, uh, which mm. is something that Green School uh, uses in the high school how we would accredit the the six weeks that the kids were doing in the traditional green school model. And there was definitely some contention there. Uh, but we, we, we put our heads together and found mm -hmm. ways to accommodate that. We also recognize that in some cases we're going to need to compromise. Kids mm -hmm. may not be able to jump out of all their classes for six weeks. So, Maybe there's sometimes like their literacy or numeracy that 
we can give them a break from the six-week intensive program and they can mm -hmm. stay in their regular classes. Uh, and ultimately, we found a way to kind of check the boxes of the school's uh, accreditation system and validating their education, uh, as well as still holding true to our values. And mm. of course, like anything, a compromise was found. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really encouraging. You know, you saw a need uh, for something. You worked alongside other like-minded people, connected, compromised, figured it out, made exceptions, you know, tailored it to students' needs. And then, um, you know, through leadership and, and a passion, you know, making it happen, making it a reality. And by you making that a reality, it allowed other students that attended that to make ideas that they have a reality, like you said. Now, thinking about that, thinking about student work um, and what they did in that academy, is there anything um, that jumps out to you that you remember a project that a student did and they were uh, either the student was really proud of it or you think it's a great example of experiential learning? There are a ton of examples of that. <laughs> uh, it, it would take me we we got to have 10 episodes to get through them all. Uh, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a few of the ones that I yeah. like. And cool, thanks. Also, something we recognized early on, and you mentioned uh, certain student projects. And early on, what we realized is there is so much power in it being collaborative work. And so mm. uh, I think it was our third iteration, our third run of running Leap Academy. We said you know, let's avoid the individual project piece because there's other ways we can coach and support kids for that. But what we love to see is when we are giving kids a wicked problem that they can do together and mm -hmm. we build that collaboratively and we have it where they can really find niches and recognize the power of a, a more distributed cognition where they all have different roles and can uh, really play those out. So I guess one of the one of my favorites was the Green School is this beautiful campus, but it also was lacking in really good quality playgrounds for the the kids on campus. They had a forest, but there was not much in terms of playground equipment. And we we pitched this to the kids uh, in the group. And they said, yeah, let's build a playground. So we went through the process of designing and resourcing, uh, getting all of the permissions to build a playground. And ultimately, we decided we were going to use old truck tires. And we built a beautiful uh, play structure that still stands to today. It was built entirely with kid hands. Uh, I guess I guess I helped a little as well as the other educators on hand, but uh, it was really those that group of twelve kids who pulled together uh, one of the best playgrounds I've seen on a school school ground, and that was a pretty amazing one. Another another kind of fun example was just one that lends some light into how we get the kids excited as well. We usually start with these ideas called uh, mini missions. And mm. the mini missions are all about 
getting them to open their eyes and start thinking of new ideas. And one of the mini missions we gave the kids was to kind of go undercover to an illegal uh, pet market in the heart of Denpasar, which is the main city in Bali, and find out what was in the garbage there. See if there was dead animals uh, and what kind of animals and uh, and kind of get get the scoop, a bit mm. of investigative journalism. And it shook the kids up, but we also found that we could take those. Uh, we found a couple owls, uh, some snakes, and the kids said, you know, these, these could make really interesting realia, things that the primary kids could be looking at in science, like the feather, the bones of a, a bird's wing. And so we learned the process of uh, removing everything except for the bones by first burying and then using hydrogen peroxide to clean them. And the kids came, came back the next week with a, uh, a cow's skull that they had bought from the butcher in the market. And, a skull. and we went through that process and created some really amazing uh, bone kits that the the kids then could be using in the science lab to learn about animal anatomy. That's that's great. Thanks for sharing that those uh, examples. Um, it would be great to to hear more, but but we'll be content uh, with that. And and it's great, like you sharing that is is getting me dreaming, getting me thinking. And I hope the listeners, you know, are doing the same. And and the way that you presented these projects, um, giving students, you know, a challenge and then sort of letting it go with with their passions, with their choices. The kids were interested in those bones. So you helped them figure out, you know, how we're gonna do this and let's do it. And I, I can only imagine the excitement and the engagement on their faces. In 2019, you left Green School to help start a school in Budapest, Hungary, which is where you're at now, where we're talking from, uh, the real school. Why was that important for you to leave Bali, you know, your wife, Balinese, and, and leaving a place you've been for eight years and start real school? Why was that important for you? This ties really nicely into how I was brought up. Uh, mm. As I said, a big part of what I think made me me was having that international experience and it was something I really wanted for my wife and my daughters to have mm. be able to learn in that same space that I felt was so rich. It also was pretty amazing that uh, it, it's geographically right between where I'm from and where my wife's from and culturally even fits that middle ground to not developing nation, not super developed nation but right in the middle so it kind of felt like a nice synthesis there and mm -hmm. probably most importantly there there was a, a founder here the founder of real school barna who really shared in the same vision for education as i did and was willing to uh support me and uh and build a school but ultimately he had confidence that what I envisioned for education would align with what he wanted to see his school turn into. And that was too good to resist. I mean, I, I could have gone anywhere with that kind of uh, 
<laughs> tag line. <laughs> Thinking about real school, green school, right? They're two different places, but just trying to understand it in my own minds and maybe for the listeners, is there anything that makes real school uh, distinctly unique or different from your experience at green school? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, it's a it's a really different environment. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. environment, but it's a indoor school for one. Uh, it doesn't mean I spent my day actually outside, and then even a little sunburned in the middle of winter, which says okay. a lot of good things. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it it feels very different inside, and in terms of what we are doing, also has some different angles that. Or approaches we're taking. One is we are emphasizing that project-based learning. And Green School, I think, is going on this path, but is a school that goes K to 12, and it becomes a lot harder to to make adjustments when you're at that scale. A real school for the moment is kindergarten to grade six. And because of that, we can align everybody in the school a lot faster to what we want. And then also, because it's a smaller school, we can really focus on something that I think is so fundamental to what education is about, and that's community. So mm. our students are not segregated for the majority of their day. Uh, and when I say segregated, I mean by age. So we've got kids in grade one and two. Well, we don't have grades actually, uh, but we have the younger kids who sometimes come up for math classes. Uh, we spend our outdoor days all together, side by side, learning the same things. Hmm. And we try to encourage as much as possible the pinnacle of learning, which is where the learner becomes the teacher. And we emphasize that in all of our students. So the grade sixes are working towards becoming great at teaching the younger kids, whether they're grade four, grade three. Mm. And so that's a big difference to me. You mentioned, um, you know, project-based learning or sort of like real life projects. There's definitely an increase um, in talking about projects with learning these days, uh, which is great. But I feel like you know, in looking into your work and hearing you talk, uh, these real-life projects go beyond that. How are your real-life projects different or promote deeper learning than just, all right, class, we're going to do this project today, um, you know, get out your notebook and, and you know, write down five answers to this question. How do your projects, how does your vision for a project lead to deeper learning? So I would say one of the most key parts to an authentic project is that it has a likelihood of failing and uh and that's something that creates a heap of anxiety for my colleagues Uh, i've become pretty good at living with it (laughs) we recognize that we always uh need to pivot and adjust a lot of what we're doing is for the first time and we don't actually think there is going to be a second time because that would defeat the whole process of doing something authentic to the group and to the needs of the current day. And so 
we we actually i think are more grounded in a process than any content or any like stellar projects mm-hmm. we really focus on okay how do we make this process something that kids can live again and again and become better at and feel like more empowered by ultimately to the point where they are doing their uh projects on their own and using the same language and uh tools as uh, as we apply Uh, and and then also it does need a real world impact you need that uh authentic audience and authentic need so a lot of the projects i'm doing with these younger kids uh address their needs and their needs are authentic but they're also school needs we need to create a camp for you because you know what it's way more interesting if you design the camp decide what we're going to eat, cook the meals, do all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We need a way to get your parents to take you on walks in nature more. So let's figure out a solution for this. And we get the kids together and brainstorm, conceptualize, and then ultimately get get dirty. <laughs> <laughs> another, uh, another thing you highlight is community and that you have highlighted in our conversation um, today. A lot of times my experience, and this might be overly negative, but you know, we take kids out of a community and separate the school from the community. How do you go about intersecting the two, school and community, and, and why is that so important? The school is a community, for one, mm-hmm. uh, and it's actually a, it's a really interesting one. Part of the reason that real school was built in a in a huge large city of almost two million people is the recognition that you can bring like-minded uh, people together, and uh, and school is a great attractor for that because people really do care about their kids and want the best for them. So those who uh, have that the capacity can seek out the type of education that aligns with their values. And that's part of growing a community as well as recognizing that it goes beyond just the kids and the teachers, but it goes on to bring in the parents and Mm. bring in the staff, uh, bring in all the entrepreneurs who sort of operate in that sphere. And, that becomes actually the community uh, that that our school holds. It's it's a really powerful thing, and it also leads to a certain authentic feel to the projects. When we have a project that involves filmmaking, well, our community has filmmakers in it. When we have a project that involves architecture, we find the architects and the contractors in our family. Uh, family group and we bring them in so the kids can hear from them and really often it's uh, pitching to them and getting critique from them so that they can improve on their product and get a glimpse of what uh, the real world is really doing. What's it been like for you starting up this new school? What what have been some uh, experiences that you've gone through? I would say starting a new school is uh, a great test of your resilience and persistence. (laughs) It, Mm. 
it's never going to be easy. There are just so many barriers in uh, in building something where you are looking for uh, for the voices to all be heard, yet still be able to move forward. And so we we definitely have have grown a ton. Uh, myself personally, the school, but it takes it takes a certain amount of persistence you need to stick with it you can't say oh my gosh this is overwhelming i need Mm. to get out of this you say you have to come at it with a bit of a all right it's challenging right now but we're working towards something and if it wasn't challenging it probably wouldn't be worth working towards so let's keep at it and let's see where where we end up yeah well thanks for the work you are doing there and just want to encourage uh people to check it out, you know, go to real school. It has a great website, you know, it has really encouraging um, pedagogy and examples and there's a blog on there and so forth. So check it out, whether you're going to go there uh, or if you want to, you know, connect and, and look for some inspiration. We talked a lot about your living experience in Bali. We won't go into as much depth with Budapest, but give us a little bit. What's it like uh, living there? It's amazing being in a place that, relatively speaking, feels so operational. Uh, Taking public transit's a treat when it arrives on time. (laughs) Uh, Finding that, well, bank cards work and stores are open till exactly the hour they say they are. And generally have what you're looking for, if they say they do, is is really nice. the there's been a lot of really pleasant surprises along the way we never knew that uh hungary had so much uh care towards the kids and the playgrounds Mm -hmm. in this country are off the wall amazing some yeah some are some are works out of a fantasy i don't think you could find better playing setups in amusement parks that you pay $50 for and here they're open to the public and that's been awesome. And then also uh, I kind of expected a bit more of a a coolness from uh, Eastern European culture. This was what I read and uh, assumed, I guess, but actually have found quite the opposite. It's been really warm and Maybe it's because we've got cute kids, but every <laughs> you go, we get smiles and uh, and kind of nice nice looks from from people. So mm. it's been really nice. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking Edu. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. Noan, as we're uh, winding things down, this has been such a wonderful and eye-opening conversation. Who do you want to give a shout out to? I'd love to give a shout out to a few people. Uh, one is Glenn Chickering. He's the head of middle school at Hawaii Prep Academy. I worked with him in Bali for eight years. 
beautiful person and mentor. Another is Aaron Eden, who I have mentioned earlier as the co-conspirator to make Leap Academy a reality. Uh, and then finally, I'd like to shout out to my uh, current mentor and the head of Real School, Dave, who brings a whole new world of experience and uh, a, a genuine love of uh, children to to the table. So there we go. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Okay, so alongside our kids, we can dream and build a better world. That's great. Thanks for leaving us with that. And thank you so much uh, for chatting with us today. This has been an out-of-this-world conversation. I appreciate your time sharing your experiences and helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning into Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.